Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. (laughs) Well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Sherry, are you familiar with the saying that once you know something, you can't unknow it? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's very true. It's There's no place in the world, I think, where it is more true than when we're talking about addiction. With my alcoholism, I knew for 10 years that I spent mostly in denial that I had crossed that invisible line into addiction and there was no going back. No matter what I tried, no matter what rules I put around my drinking or or the periods of sobriety I would have in between my relapses. You know, once you know, you just know. And we are blessed today to have a guest on the Intoxicated Podcast who not only knows, she knows a lot. Her name is Christina Veselak. And what we're really excited to talk to Christina about is not only does she know a lot about her topic, but she has an unbridled passion for it. And she's been in this business for a long time, but it seems to me a renewed energy. So let me tell you a little bit about Christina, and then we'll welcome her on. Christina is a mental health nutritionist. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist and a licensed psychotherapist, and she founded the Academy for Addiction and Mental Health Nutrition. Christina Veselak, welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. Matt, thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here because I love talking about this. I I know that you do, and I know in our phone conversations, You've got, really, I said unbridled passion. It's shocking to me because how long have you been doing this business, doing this work? 35 years. 35 years, and it seems like you just you just learned something new and you want to share it with the world in kind of an unexpected way because of your enthusiasm, um, which is which is really great. Let's Let's back up and start at the beginning. How did you develop a passion for addiction and mental health and the connection to nutrition? Well, initially when I went through school, like so many other psychotherapists, I didn't know anything about addiction and more or less, they were those weird people over there that I didn't want to touch with a 10 foot pole. Now that's not completely true because I first confronted my codependency when I was 16, I'm actually going to tell the story because I think it's pertinent to part of our topic here, which is friends and family members. When I was 16, I was at a boarding school in England rather unexpectedly due to some tragedy in my family. And my first roommate was a girl named Sally. She was the daughter of a famous British novelist. And what I came to realize very quickly is that she was addicted to anything she could get her little hands on at any time of the day or night. It actually turned out that most of the school was too, and there were only a few of us who weren't, me being one of those who weren't. But my heart went out to this really lost young woman and I sort of befriended her best I could. And after about a month, she was watching me and she decided that she liked what I had and that she wanted to get rid of her drugs, get rid of her alcohol, get rid of her partying and actually start studying and getting good grades to get into a good university. And I poured my heart and my soul out to this roommate of mine. I tutored her, I supported her, I listened to her. I did everything for her. And she did wonderfully for maybe six to eight weeks. And then we both went away for the weekend to different places. And when I came back, her side of the room was empty. And there was a note saying, I have gone to be with real friends. And I didn't see her very often since then, Um, but every time I saw her, she was more emaciated, more wraith-like, and looked like she was dying. Mm -hmm. And I thought, real friends, hmm. 
because she had just gone right back into the using lifestyle. And it broke my heart. It broke my heart. And it was actually the beginning of a spiritual awakening for me because I realized that I had done everything I knew how to do out of my unboundaried codependency, you know, heart. And it wasn't enough. So that was when I realized I needed to get in contact with some sort of power greater than myself. So that was 16. And I actually did um, have a spiritual awakening and did develop a spiritual life. So now, you know, fast forward to being in graduate school without even thinking about it, the trauma of that was driving me to, okay, I'm not going to do anything with addiction. God, I didn't take any of the classes, didn't do anything. And this is true of so many psychotherapists who don't realize that so many of their psychotherapy clients actually either have addiction themselves or are from an addicted family. That you can't actually tease it apart that way. But I didn't know that then. And nobody informed me of that. And so I was job hunting and job hunting and job hunting. And this ad and I were looking at each other in the face. The ad was to be a floor staff at a residential treatment program for court-ordered alcoholic teenage boys. Oh, yes, indeed. (laughs) (laughs) And I knew I did not want to do that. Um, but I also got hungrier and hungrier. And so four months later, I went in for an interview and they hired me on the spot. And I said, I know nothing about addiction. And they said, that's fine. We'll teach you. And they did. And somewhere in that two-year process where I got the hours for my license, I fell in love with people with addiction, even teenage boys, their families, and the whole field. And that's how it started. That's great. That's a great story. Um, It's amazing. It's almost universal that when somebody works in a field and puts passion into the field, you know, there's a backstory that drove Mm -hmm. them into that field. In fact, I should say right off the top that Christina, you are a mentor to Kelly Miller, who was on the very you know, not the very first episode, but the very fourth episode of the Intoxicated Podcast, way back when, when we didn't know what we were doing, and we didn't actually even know what the topic for the podcast was, although we knew it would have something to do with addiction. And, and so um, Kelly has a similar but different story in that her childhood experiences drove her passion for what she does and the connection that she has had with you. And uh, we know we're very appreciative for all that you have taught her. You know, we're big believers, Christina, that food is medicine. Um, I think most people uh, in this world, in this world of of self-help or awareness and enlightenment that that do work on themselves, that do research, are aware of the fact that there are diseases and conditions that food can, can reverse and cure. I think the one that probably is most commonly understood these days is type 2 diabetes. I think most people understand um, that you can go the, the medical or the, the chemical route, um, or you can, you can fix yourselves with diet. That's not the case all the time. I'm not trying to be a physician here, but I know that there are a lot of instances where that happens. Yeah. But, um, food is part of the cure for addiction as well. And we would love to have you talk a little bit about that. Well, it certainly is. And, Where my passion has evolved to is wanting to get food and nutrition into the addiction conversation and into the mental health conversation, because oddly enough, it's not and never has been. And I believe that this is a tragedy and that it has led to many unnecessary deaths Mm -hmm. and torn up families. And it breaks my heart. Absolutely. It absolutely breaks my heart because on some level, this is common sense. And then let me explain what I mean by that. We know everybody agrees that addiction is a biochemical disorder, 
along with being a psychosocial and spiritual. But traditional treatment, including AA and psychiatrists, et cetera, um, only address the, psycho, the psychosocial or the spiritual aspects of it. And other than throwing more medication at the brain, you know, antidepressants, suboxone, naloxone, right? They don't touch the brain. Well, the brain actually drives addiction and it also drives recovery. Because if you really think about it, we need an online brain in order to get us to sleep at night so that we can wake up in the morning in time to go to either treatment or an AA meeting, right? It helps us think clearly. It mediates our moods. So my motto, here's my favorite motto, that it's our brain's job to allow us to cope with stress gracefully. Ooh, I like that. I need to. Isn't that nice? Think about that. Gracefully. Wouldn't it be nice if we all were able to cope with stress gracefully? Oh, absolutely. Well, I, uh, I, 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 think, I think that's why the topic that we're talking about here and that you're going to explain to us, it, it certainly applies to addiction. But when you said we could all stand to handle stress gracefully, <laughs> uh, if you're not addicted, don't tune out. Um, this, this message is for you as well. I, th I think just good brain health through nutrition is, is for everyone. But I digress. Please continue. Well, it really is for everyone because when for our brain to do its job optimally, it needs to be fed optimally. Just like for the brand new beautiful car that we drive off the lot, we're not going to drive it off the lot at all if it doesn't have water, oil, and gas in its tank. And we can admire it. And we can admire the color and the shininess and the leather seats and how cool it is. But if it's not fed, it's not going to take us anywhere. And we don't get to show it off. So same thing with our brain. If we don't feed our brain what it needs to function, it's not going to drive us to the places we need to be driven to. And the thing is, science has shown us what the brain needs to function optimally. It actually needs water too. And it needs oil. It needs the right type of fats like the omega-3 fatty acids like fish oil, that sort of thing. And oddly enough, it also needs enough cholesterol. Did you know that people with very low cholesterol, which makes their heart doctors happy, have a higher risk of suicide and even homicide? Well, it wow. certainly doesn't surprise me after what I've learned just over these past few years, but, but prior to kind of getting into this game with you through Kelly, I, that would have shocked me. Um, yeah, but but yeah. yeah, that's a shocking statistic. That shocks me because I have fairly low cholesterol. So watch out. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we, we want it within range, but some people's cholesterol is very low out of range. And that's when it gets dangerous because cholesterol does so many really important things in the body and in the brain. But anyway, that's a little bit of a digression. So like a car, our brains need water and it needs oil. Unlike a car, it also needs protein. It needs these little chemicals called amino acids that when we eat protein, so protein can include eggs, meat, fish, cheese, milk, you know, found in beans, um, nuts, that sort of thing. It's a little harder to get all the ones we need from beans and nuts, but you know, um, you can get some of it. So those are the protein foods. When we digest them, they turn into amino acids and these aminos go everywhere in our body doing all sorts of wonderful things. Some of them go into the brain and they make our neurotransmitters. So neurotransmitters are actually the chemicals that mediate mood. When we have enough of them and they're working properly, we're happy when things are good. We're sad and angry only when things aren't good. 
right? We're appropriately sad, we're appropriately angry, we're appropriately worried. And then when things get stable again, we go back to being happy. We have energy, we can focus, we can think. Our brain goes in a straight line and we can sleep easily and effortlessly. We just go to sleep and then we wake up when we're supposed to with energy. Okay, that is a well-fed, imbalanced brain. And when that happens, we don't need mood-altering substances. You know, maybe if we've, you know, an upsetting event has happened, we may want, you know, a drink or we may want something to just chill out, right? But it's just very temporarily because our coping system has gotten overwhelmed as anybody's would given whatever the circumstances. Okay, that's normal. But um, our brains step up and then they remake, they deplete the neurotransmitters because of the stressor or the illness, but then they make more because we're eating well and everything's working well. Okay, that's the best of all possible worlds. And, and in addiction, there's a hijacking that takes place of those neurotransmitters, correct? We, there the, sure is. The brain, the brain starts to allocate, you know, dopamine, I think, is just one of the neurotransmitters, but it's the one that's most commonly discussed, and I think our listeners would be familiar mm -hmm. with. Um, it, it, our brain starts to reserve dopamine release for only when we consume that addictive substance, in, in my case, alcohol. Am I explaining that correctly? Almost. The, the fact is, is that our neurotransmitters can get depleted for all sorts of reasons, including genetics. We can be born with depleted neurotransmitters. Hmm. And when that's the case, we don't feel right. Things are off. Even if things are good around us, things feel off inside until we find that magic substance or that magic behavior that fires that particular depleted neurotransmitter and all of a sudden we feel normal or we feel good or we feel whatever good thing we feel and it's like oh I want more of that that feels really good give me more and then give me more and then give me more and then we're off and running mm -hmm. right but when it when we first encounter and I'm sure you maybe you yourself or you've had clients or people you know who, when they first discovered this substance, it was like this light went off, this light bulb in your brain, and you felt normal. Yeah, I can't, can't tell you how many times I've heard that story. Absolutely. Exactly. Well, those people had depleted neurotransmitters from the beginning. That's a genetic thing. But stress depletes it, lack of eating the right foods, depletes it, illness depletes it. And if we're not eating the right foods and not digesting it properly, the brain never manages to rebuild its stores. So we're always under. And then we start using a mood altering chemical because, hey, it makes us feel better. But the problem is, Matt, is that it keeps depleting it. It fires it, but then we have less. And if the brain is not doing a good job in rebuilding the stores, then down the spiral we go. It's like we go in a long drive in our car, we use up all the gas and we fill it up, but the brain in the car says, oh, I used up all this gas. I, I think maybe I need a smaller gas tank, <laughs> right? So the gas tank gets smaller and smaller and smaller. So every time you fill it up, it doesn't last as long. Not a great analogy. Um, my, but it kind of works. My husband's analogy is using your debit card, mm -hmm. right? And every time you use your debit card to pull withdrawal out of the bank, there's less money in the bank. Now, if you make deposits, that's great. The more deposits you make, the more money you can pull out. But if you're just using your debit card with like, using a addictive substance without refilling your tank with good food, good exercise and sleep, sooner or later you go into a deficit, right? 
And then you're scrounging for all sorts of ways to get money, all sorts of ways to fire those neurotransmitters. And that's when we get into trouble. So that when you then stop using the drug, you go into withdrawal because there's not enough neurotransmitters for your body and brain to function. This is why your late stage alcoholic or your uh, person addicted to Xanax, if they stop abruptly, they can go into seizures and die because they've used up all their GABA. Now, this is true, not just for people using addictive substances. This is also true for family members or anybody in a chronically stressful situation. We talked about this in our phone conversation. That chronic stress depletes our neurotransmitters, leading us to feel not okay in a whole variety of ways. That actually is now no longer connected to what's happening around us, but is taking on a life of its own. So our lack of brain chemicals means we can no longer effectively cope with the stress happening around us. So it feels worse. And we do a bad job coping. We make mistakes, we overreact, we underreact, we engage in poor self-care. We do whatever we do as family members, right? That's not necessarily useful because our brain is no longer supporting our ability to effectively deal with it. And the way we support our brains is to to consume those proteins, specifically the amino acid containing proteins. The amino acids are the the fuel that's going to um, rebuild the neurotransmitters. So I'm wondering, since you've been in this for, for so long, You've seen a lot of things when it comes to food trends. The two that stick out for me, I mean, I remember in the 80s and 90s, the fat-free diet you know, trend. Um, the, the fat-free diet trend, guess what? If, if, you're, if you're on low-fat or fat-free diet, you're not eating a lot of meat. You're, you're not eating a lot of the, the foods that you're talking about that are food, cheese and dairy, and um, you're, yep. eating, you're eating a lot of carbs. Um, you're I eating a lot of sugar. Yeah, absolutely. In, in my personal example, uh, there was a time when I decided I wanted to lose weight. I had through college and then beyond, I had gained 40 pounds I didn't want to carry around anymore. And so I did what was popular at the time. And I went hardcore on a fat-free diet. And But the, the one thing I allowed myself was unlimited alcohol during that period. And I remember <laughs> I would have, you, you'll laugh at this, I would have fat-free uh, cream cheese with fat-free pretzels and a big glass of vodka. That was my evening snack after work every day. And boy, not only was I uh, fueling my addiction and pushing myself across that line, um, but I, I was, you know, doing bad things to my neurotransmitter supply for sure, eating that way. And and I think it's one of the things that that pushed me toward addiction. Has that been frustrating for you to have to deal with? you know, a diet that, like you said, the cardiologist probably loves that diet, but anyone else, anyone dealing in mental health can't, if they know their stuff, they can't possibly like a diet like that. Well, exactly, because it creates a starving brain. And starving brains fuel addiction and cravings and relapse, and by the way, misery. Just plain unadulterated misery. And so we need um, that protein, but not just like one meal a day, like some people like, we actually need it spread out throughout the day. And this is to keep blood sugar stable. So we recommend eating, you know, more or less 20 grams of protein minimum every four hours. That keeps the neurotransmitters fed and happy. Now we want some fruits and veggies in there for the vitamins and minerals. We want, you know, a variety of fatty acids in there. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not recommending a pure carnivore diet. I have friends who do, but anyway, that's not me. I want, I want the whole kit and caboodle. Um, <clears throat> but it needs to be throughout the day to keep blood sugar stable. And blood sugar is something that most people 
know about instinctively, like if your five-year-old is throwing a tantrum, one of the first things you're going to do is feed her. Right. And we all know what it feels like when our blood sugar is really low. If we're paying attention, you know, we get hangry. And most of us know what hangry feels like. Well, what most of us don't know is that low blood sugar can set us up for craving and relapse. In fact, we have found that missing a meal is probably the number one relapse trigger for all addiction. I, I think this part is absolutely fascinating because in my early sobriety, before I met Kelly, before I knew any of this stuff, I, and I think I'm not alone, I wanted to tie my sobriety to other areas in my life where I would get healthy. So right. I didn't have, when I quit drinking, I didn't have 40 pounds to lose, but I certainly had 10 pounds to lose. And I thought, well, as a part of my sobriety, I, I want to lose that weight. And if I got busy during the day and I missed a meal, as opposed to thinking that as a negative, I thought, oh, this is great. Look at all right. these calories that I've skipped. I'll just, I, you know, I won't eat lunch today. I'll make it to dinner. I'll stay busy. And then when dinner would come, I would eat like a triple portion of dinner because I was so incredibly hungry. And you're right. The cravings for alcohol were just uh, debilitating toward the end of the day. So here I am thinking I'm skipping these calories. I'm not skipping anything. I'm making them up on the backside and, and I'm battling my own brain to keep myself from drinking in the meantime. And I didn't understand why any of that was happening. I thought I was, a, I thought I was brilliant because I had skipped lunch. So I, th I think this part is is fascinating and, and it's relatively unknown. Like you said, no, nobody talks about this stuff. Well, one of the things that makes me so sad is I ended up with a specialty of working with people with chronic relapse. Those who'd been through three or four treatment programs, those who were going to two or three AA meetings a day and still having cravings and still slipping and still relapsing and therefore still beating themselves up for being a failure at recovery. Other people can have recovery, but I can't. What's wrong with me? Well, most of those people in my experience, when you ask them what their relationship with food is, they say, mm, I take it or leave it. I didn't know it mattered to my recovery. Does it matter to my recovery? And so I tell them that yes, indeed it does. And I explain why. And that one of the stories that really bring, brought this home to me was this lovely young woman. She was 34, she was from Ireland. She'd been to, she was currently in her third treatment program, which is where I met her. She was going to a couple of AA meetings a day. She was really motivated to stay sober, completely unable to stay sober because she had all these cravings. And I told her all about this and she started to cry and she says, oh, that explains it. I went to a Wayne Dwyer lecture a couple of months ago. You know, he was this wonderful motivational speaker. And she said, in the middle of it, I had this really intense spiritual awakening and I committed with every fiber of my being to sobriety. And within two hours, I was drunk. Mm -hmm. She said the cravings came out of the blue. Mm -hmm. And I said, no, they didn't. Cravings never come out of the blue. We may think they do, but they actually don't. And so I asked her to recount the beginning of the day. And she'd actually had breakfast. But she'd work through lunch. She never had an afternoon snack. In fact, she typically worked through lunch. And her husband picked her up late, so they skipped dinner. So if, you know, missing a meal since went up for relapse, she had now missed two of them. Mm. And they were going to eat after the lecture, but after the lecture, the craving had set in so strongly that the first thing she did was drive to the bar and get drunk. And she hated herself. 
and she thought she couldn't ever trust herself again because she didn't understand the biochemistry of what had happened. That actually the biochemistry was really simple. Her prefrontal cortex was starving. It didn't have enough fuel to operate. So first of all, willpower goes out the window. Secondly, she's dysregulated because of the adrenaline that happens when blood sugar drops. And, you know, we know that people reach for their drug or behavior of choice when, um, when adrenaline is running. And third, the adrenaline shuts down the prefrontal cortex, which is where we store our recovery skills, which is where we think to pause, think the drink through, call your sponsor, do all of these really important things that can help us deal with cravings. Well, if you don't have access to those skills because your brain's offline, your, you know, that other part of your brain where the addict lives knows exactly what to do and you're off and running. Well, that was the last time she, she was able to stay sober after that because that was the missing piece in her recovery. So we wanna be teaching everybody that food matters. Oh, absolutely. We get, we get questions a lot from people who say, I, I don't understand. Either the drinker who says, I don't understand. I literally found myself in the liquor store parking lot and I don't know how I got there. Or the loved one of the drinker who says, this person I'm married to is so committed to sobriety, mentally, uh, emotionally, they're just, they're all about it. Why do they keep drinking? And I think this part, you know, this talk about blood sugar, I, I agree with what you said. We understand the child who's having a tantrum, that's a blood mm -hmm. sugar thing. I think for most of us, the only other connection we have to blood sugar is we know that it has something to do with diabetes, honestly. <laughs> right. Um, but the, this switch from the prefrontal cortex, when, when we go into that low blood sugar, I'm in survival mode, all of the decision-making is happening in the, the amygdala, right? Where the, yes. the, the, where the addiction lives, as you said. And um, a, a well-meaning person who is dedicated to either um, their, their sobriety or, or anything is, is going to potentially relapse because the amygdala's job, it, when it's in charge, is to seek out anything that's on the list of survival, right? And if, mm -hmm. if, if alcohol has made its way to the list of survival because it's driving the pleasure that, you know, and, and our, our brains um, think of pleasure as a, as a requirement, as a necessity. Am I, am I thinking of that right? Yes, and it's not, dopamine is not just about pleasure. It's very much about survival. Okay. And by the time we've developed a dependency, a physical dependency upon a substance, survival becomes part of the equation. And so when the survival part of our brain gets activated, and it's, it's more than just the amygdala, though that's part of it, um, the craving gets set up. And the craving, the physical craving in the brain overrides everything and completely you know, hijacks choice. But what hijacks choice first that sets us up for the craving is the um, lack of ability to utilize our prefrontal cortex. That goes offline first. So the, the situation that led me to realize that this was about more than just alcohol was a lovely gentleman I worked with many years ago now who really likes strip clubs, okay? That was his addiction of choice and it had become a full-blown addiction. Mm -hmm. And he started working with me. We'd been working around four months. He was taking the amino acids to rebuild the neurotransmitters because I didn't mention that we can take amino acids, you can buy them over the counter, you can buy them from Amazon. Within 20 minutes, they can turn off a craving, they can rebuild your neurotransmitter systems, help you feel more stable, happy, whatever you need to feel in the moment. So he was doing all of that. He was eating his protein every four hours. He hadn't had one slip until one Monday, he comes in with shame dripping off him. 
And I said, what happened? He said, well, Saturday afternoon, the craving came out of the blue and I ended up in my club. And again, I said, well, cravings don't come out of the blue. So what happened? Well, Saturday's usually his day off. But that morning at 7.30, his boss called. There was an emergency. Could he please come in immediately? So he throws clothes on, doesn't take his supplements, and doesn't eat breakfast. Around 11 o'clock, the thoughts of his club start dancing. Okay, it's not a craving yet, but they're dancing. Now, if he'd been thinking and more experienced, he would have taken that as a signal that he needed to um, either eat or take the amino acid glutamine, which feeds the prefrontal cortex when you don't have food around. But he was too engaged in work and he just tried to push all of these cravings off to the side and ignore them because he knew he wasn't gonna you know, engage in them. So he just tried to ignore them. Well, they got stronger and more and more insistent. And by the time he got off at work at two, okay, he's now missed two meals, breakfast and lunch. The craving had taken over and he went straight to his club. Left a couple of hours later, realized he was hungry, went to McDonald's and ate. I looked at him and said, if you had gone to McDonald's first, what would have happened? And he said, oh, I would have gone straight home. <laughs> and that's when I realized that this was that the hijacking of the prefrontal cortex by adrenaline affects every addictive behavior. Oh, absolutely. That's a, that's a great story. Um, one of the things that I find fascinating about, about this topic, I think it, it, when we talk about eating protein every four hours, when we talk about eating the right foods as fuel for our body and fuel for our brain and fuel to knock down the cravings, I think to, to some degree it falls into the category, the same category that getting exercise, getting mm -hmm. enough sleep, getting out in nature falls into. I think a lot of people acknowledge, yeah, yeah, that's important, but then life gets busy and um, they, even though they, they, they think it to be important, they give lip service to it. Um, they don't actually follow through. In your practice, do you find that it takes uh, some reminding to, to convince people that, no, this is legitimately important. This isn't just a, you know, oh, if you have time, eat right. It, it might help you a little bit. This is a key, key component to the recovery process. What I ask my clients to do is to give me a week. I say, would you be willing to eat protein every four hours for just one week? After that, you can do whatever you want to do. One week and see what happens. And typically, they do that. So when your client agrees to eat protein every four hours for that week, what is typically the result? So I used to run a domestic violence agency with a partner. He worked with the men, I worked with the women, but every once in a while I subbed for the men's groups. And I would always give this lecture because when blood sugar drops, adrenaline kicks in. And in some people, adrenaline can cause anger and violence. And so I gave, would give them all this challenge for a week, eat protein every four hours, get put aside the Captain Crunch and Mountain Dew that you're used to eating for breakfast, by the way. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Mountain Dew gets such a bad rap, but it it is so it is so prevalent. Like Ugh. every pot smoker I knew always drank Mountain Dew. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, by the way, I think it's a drug in and of its own category. <laughs> I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. So I asked them to put aside, you know, sugar for as much as they can, not 100%, but just limit it for a week, eat protein every four hours, and then report back to the group the following week what changes they notice. And these big, burly ex-cons covered in tattoos 
would stop me in the hallway with tears in their eyes and ask me why nobody had ever told them this before. And that the entire week they did not have one violent or angry outburst because they could actually manage the stress that it just didn't happen. And this was the first time in their attempted recovery from domestic violence that anger and violence didn't hijack them. They didn't choose to be that way. It happened to them. Ooh. And they realized by eating protein every four hours that part, at least part of what's happening, if not all of what was happening, was the adrenaline from low blood sugar. Oh, absolutely. I love that story. And I love you are singing our song now um, when you say that they didn't choose to have this happen. They didn't choose to be this way. This happened to them. Yeah. We are big proponents of that when it comes when it comes to addiction, certainly. And, and the cases like what you just described fit that bill as well. Let's talk a little bit about the loved ones of the alcoholics that many, many, many of our listeners are the wives of alcoholic husbands. Um, certainly other loved ones mm-hmm. listen to our podcast as well, but that's, that's kind of one of our predominant segments. We've talked many times in our uh, recovery group and our peer support group for the loved ones called echoes of recovery. We've talked about how living with an alcoholic feels like living in a state of constant vigilance. You're yes. in this fight or flight all the time and the body and the brain is not built for being in fight or flight all the time. How can food, how can amino acids uh, help with that situation, help us to regulate and lower? We, we, we just talked with a woman this week who talked about how she feels like her shoulders and her ears are married. She cannot relax. She mm-hmm. is constantly in this tight, stressed situation, and she wants to be able to lower her shoulders, calm down, nervous system regulation. Can you talk about how, how food can play a part in that, that relationship? Absolutely. <clears throat> So I always like to begin and end with food. So getting the right nutrients in will certainly help feed the brain so that she's coping better um, and can make better choices for herself, you know, start the upward spiral. But in the middle, sometimes we need to jumpstart the system using supplements and specifically using amino acids that you can buy over the counter. Because when we're under chronic stress, everything gets depleted and our neurotransmitters get fried. Um, And so let's take this one client of yours whose shoulders are up by her ears all the time and she's physically stressed. That's a sign of low GABA. Uh, GABA is our... um, muscle relaxing neurotransmitter system and our calming neurotransmitter system. When it's low, we have physical muscle tension and anxiety. We have butterflies in the stomach. Um, We may clench our jaw. We may grind our teeth at night. We may not be able to sleep because we physically can't relax. And so there's a couple of, And also you may think, well, I need to come up with a solution, but should I do this or should I do that? Or maybe I should do the other. Oh my God, I don't know what to do. Let me run away. Okay, that's also low GABA. And either taking GABA itself in a low dose to start with, you may need more, but we recommend one or 200 milligrams to start with, or the amino acid theanine works within 20 minutes to rebuild temporarily your neurotransmitter system so that you can take a deep breath, so that you can relax, so that you can stop and think clearly. It buys you time. Now, one dose isn't gonna be enough to rebuild the neurotransmitter system, but it is gonna be enough to get you started. And then you take it every day or a couple of times a day for six to eight months and you're along with other good self-care and your neurotransmitter system upregulate, starts functioning better and is more likely to stay functioning. 
and more likely to stay functioning if during that six to eight months while you're taking the supplement, you're also aligning your diet with the maintenance, right? So that the, you continue exactly. to get the gabbit through food and you, you can come off the supplements eventually. Exactly. So you can come off the supplements eventually because they're, even though they work really, really fast, they're anti-addictive because they're rebuilding the, your neurotransmitter system. So over time, you get to take less and less rather than more and more. Mm. That's great. That's great. Now, we talked about a specific example of someone who's, uh, who's tense in the upper body. Um, and, I, and I know, I'm, I'm imagining anyway, that this is case by case. And that's why uh, you do the wonderful work that you do. You meet with the person and you understand mm-hmm. the situation they're in. But do you have any general advice? Because I, I, can, I can already feel the emails coming. People are going to say, oh, you didn't ask about my specific situation. What, what do I do in my situation? If you are the loved one of an alcoholic or someone with any other addiction problem and you're in that state of constant vigilance, if you don't know the specifics of the situation, is there you know, a general recommendation for amino acid supplements? There is. Um... And so just briefly, we have four major mood-mediating neurotransmitter systems. The catecholamines, which include dopamine and norepinephrine, they give us energy, focus, and drive. They get very depleted, and so we get so exhausted, we can't get out of bed in the morning. Um, We spoke about GABA. We have low serotonin. Serotonin, when it gets depleted, we become perfectionists. Um, irritable, we hold on to grudges, we can't forgive. Sound familiar? Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, have, <laughs> we have a lot of shame and low self-esteem. We're more likely to beat ourselves up. Um, we have trouble sleeping because we have all of this worry and anxiety and negative self-talk that goes round and round and round in the brain and won't shut off. Okay, that's low serotonin. And then the low endorphins are, we just are in so much emotional and maybe physical pain. We're overcome with the grief of the situation. We're overcome with loneliness, right? We cry every night because it's just so painful and we feel so lonely and so alone in the world. That's low endorphins. Well, for all of those, we have a particular amino acid that can quickly rebuild that system. There's a number of good books out there that can explain this. And of course, I have lots of trained coaches on my website who will be happy to um, help any of your um, you know, listeners or clients. There's one mixture we really like that a lot of people can start with that's even safe if you're on medication is called Total Amino Solution by Janessa. You take three a couple of times a day, and a lot of people find it just calms them down and helps everything work a little better. Um, Some of the books I like is called The Mood Cure by Julia Ross. She also has a wonderful newer book called The Craving Cure, where she focuses on sugar and sugar addiction and how many of your family members are using sugar to feel better. And um, so that's a wonderful educational tool. And then you want to, um, so that's gonna help people learn how to use amino acids. Then you want some adrenal support and you know, you can go to a good vitamin store and just ask the clerk for help in finding the right adrenal mixture. You may need more energy. You may need less energy. Um, You may need a combination and any educated clerk will help you find your way through adrenal support. That's great. I think you've just saved us a lot of emails from Mm -hmm. people that are gonna say, ah, you didn't ask her a specific question. But if people do have specific questions, how can people learn more about you, more about your mission, maybe get in contact with you? Um, what's, the, what's the best next step if people want, if they're excited about what they've heard and they want to know more from Christina Veselak? Well, so for the, 
um, people who really want to learn more, I offer a, a certification course. And Kelly actually went through my course, and that's what got her started on this whole journey. And um, where I teach professionals, but also non-professionals, how to use amino acid therapy in your um, with your clients or in your program. And that's starting again in February. And the website for that is aminoacidtherapy.com. Very easy to remember. If you want help in, um, you know, protein recipes, more information about protein, I just started a new website called eatingproteinsaveslives.org. And that's actually connected to a GoFundMe fundraiser because I am so passionate. I want to get this information across the entire country. And so, but I can't do it by myself. So I'm asking people to join with me by donating money and resources to help this educational campaign. So Kelly and some other people have donated amazing information for our resource library. For a donation as little as $2, you get access to our full resource library and can get tips and help on recipes, how to eat more protein, why it matters, things that you can duplicate and give to your clients or uh, put out in the local newspaper um, to really get this word out. So eatingproteinsaveslives.org. One of the ways I know that you, you plan to spread this message across the nation is through a billboard campaign, which I think is just brilliant because when you've got a message that there's just an entry-level misunderstanding of or lack of knowledge of, um, it's the kind of thing that we need to smack us in the face when we're driving down the road. So <laughs> I, th I think it's you know brilliant. I, I, love, I love the idea. And so some of the fundraising that you're doing um, at eatingproteinsaveslives.org will go toward um, this billboard campaign, yes? Absolutely. Most of it will go towards the billboard campaign because unfortunately they're a little pricey. Yeah. And so I need everybody's help in making this, make, getting this message out into the world. That's great. Well, we appreciate you coming here to share the message and hopefully we've armed lots of people with this information and they'll want to help spread the word so they'll they'll check out that website. Christina, we just can't thank you enough for coming on and spending this time with us on the Intoxicated Podcast today. Well, you're so welcome, but I also want to let your listeners know that they can call me directly. Oh, great. So my phone number is 303-888-9617. Wonderful. Wow. That's awesome. Thank you very and much for sharing that. You're so welcome. It's been lovely talking with you both. Thanks again for coming on the Intoxicated Podcast. You're welcome. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to SoberEvolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.